0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in June 2008.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
1: Today's guest has a very varied Broadway resume, starting with a show back in 1966 That never officially opened a much much anticipated show produced by David Merrick called Breakfast at Tiffany's, and then from the low of that show never opening the disappointment to the high of being nominated for a Tony Award for creating the role of Diana Morales in a chorus line, and then winning the Tony a few years later for a day in Hollywood and night in Ukraine. Recently, Anna in the Tropics, an original play, and now starring in In the Heights as the character Camilla. We welcome... Priscilla Lopez. Hi, Priscilla.
2: Hi. So nice to be here.
1: We'll start talking about In the Heights, which is a very interesting show created by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who has written the music and also stars in the show. And for our audience that may not have seen it, they've been listening to the music on our channel. Oh, but, good. But for those who may not have seen it, can you just tell us briefly what the show is and a little bit about your character, who she is, who Camilla is?
2: Well, briefly, the show takes place over about 36 hours in a community uptown in Washington Heights. And Which is an area
1: of the northern of, part of Manhattan.
2: Right, yeah. northern Manhattan, about 181st Street. And, um, it, you get into the lives of these people and the, and the, the, The neighborhood is in a transitional state. You know, it's being yuppified, and Starbucks is moving in and all of the above. And the neighborhood people are being uh, pushed out. So it takes – that's uh, some of the elements. Then there is my character, Camila uh, Rosario. And she and her husband own the uh, car service in the neighborhood, and we have a daughter that was on scholarship at Stanford University, and she comes home for the summer and tells us how she has lost her scholarship, and we're, you know, can't believe it. And basically, she lost it because she had she felt she had to go work and make extra money to pay for the tuition. And uh, we, as her parents, are very upset about this. And so that's what's going on with us. And there's the uh, beauty salon that's packing its bags because their rent is going up. And there's the grandma who's won the lottery. So it's all these different stories uh, going on simultaneously uh, in this period of 36 hours. But basically, it's a show about uh, home and really what that means, you know, not only your physical home, but your emotional home.
1: It's also a story of first generation Americans like Nina the daughter being born here much as you right. yourself was first exactly. generation your parents being born in Puerto Rico Exactly. and the character you play has come to New York City has come to this country right. so it has that 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 authenticity in terms of your own background
2: It does and when I <laughs> I said to my daughter that I was uh basing this character on my mother and acting like my mother. She said, you're not acting (laughs) like your mother, you're acting like you. (laughs) So (laughs) I said, well, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But it's true. I mean, um, it's very close to home. Um, And I think for all of us, we feel that. And it's great because um, I I just, I was so attracted to this musical because it's such a positive story for the Latin community. You know, I mean, it's written by a Latino for Latinos and it has a lot of heart and at first you know it was criticized because it was like you know they were calling it Disneyland and whatever and and I thought wow you know it's interesting how the media can't just accept 36 hours in these people's lives without it being what they think you know we're supposed to be prostitutes pimps or whatever you know murderers drug addicts and that's why I love this piece because it gets to the heart of who we are and oh I could go on forever. But,
1: <laughs> but it, it's also a story of generational conflicts yes. and, and conflicts that exist in any culture, not just the Exactly, Latino and culture.
2: that's why everybody loves it. And it's generational from the older people and they relate coming in as immigrants and having those struggles with their own families. Uh it's uh it go it it crosses musical um Genres from the hip hop rap to the different uh, rhythms of the Latin music to the traditional Broadway sound, which satisfies, you know, your regular theater goer, but it attracts the young who love the music because they can relate to that. And then, of course, the Latin, um, community. So it has so many elements for people to hook into, you know, and it, it's a beautiful show
0: many of us have read about the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda began writing this show when he was a student at Wesleyan, so presumably you were not in the earliest workshops. No. <laughs> I'm wondering <laughs> when you did get involved with the show. There was, of course, the Off-Broadway run last year. Was that when you first got into it? Yes,
2: I I got hooked into it just before, like about a month before rehearsal started for Off-Broadway. And uh, the first time I became aware of this I was actually doing a play called Beauty of the Father, and it was a city center. And uh, Sergio Trujillo, who had been the choreographer connected to it in other incarnations and other workshops, met me in the lobby and he said, Oh, I'm doing this show, and you know, you, should, you would really be good for it, and whatever. And, um, and he handed me a script, and it was very uh, full, lots of characters. I mean, just, you know, it was like all over the place, and I hadn't heard any music. But the thing was that there was going to be a workshop during the summer months and my husband's a musician and he had been traveling and um, he was usually home in the summers and for two summers I had given up summers to do workshops that never materialized for me so I thought you know I can't do this again I can't give up another summer uh, to do this workshop and uh, I I just can't I can't so that sort of one so that was my first inkling of this show so fast forward to Beauty of the Fathers over I'm having lunch with one of the cast members you know after the production is closed and he says oh come on let's go to my friend's house down at blah blah Street so we go and there's this young woman there who I don't know and we're talking whatever and at one point she said you know you don't know me my my name is Jill Furman, and I'm one of the producers of The Heights. And we had wanted you for the workshop. And i oh yeah, I'm sorry, you know, it didn't work out timing. And she said, well, you know, do you mind if I send you a script? I said, sure, go right <laughs> ahead, because I always say yes to everything, and then, you know, I never say no. So she sent it, and this time she sent the script and the music. She sent a CD, and when I heard the music, I went, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, it just really captured me. And um, so I met with Lynn manuel and Tommy Kail and Alex Lacamoire, who's the musical director, and I said, I listen, guys, I love this. It's great, but there's only one problem. My character doesn't have a song, and this is a musical, and characters express <laughs> themselves musically. So um, Tommy Kail said, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. Um, you know, we can't promise you if you sign on the dotted line, you'll get a song, but this is a work in progress, and, you know, we're developing this. So I thought... Okay. And I just had a feeling about it. I just had a feeling. And I said, all right, you know, I like the project enough, the project enough that I'll take my chances and hope, you know, that it all works out and I get a song.
0: So how did how did your character and, indeed, coming to a song develop? When did that all happen?
2: Well, it did not happen for Off-Broadway. And I was very disappointed, you know. And I got it. I mean, they had a lot on their plate to get this show up and running, let alone start writing new material. You know, so, but at the same time, you know, I was very disappointed and I saw everybody um, just singing their hearts out and, you know, expressing themselves musically. And um, so I remember I had a, because I'm a terrible liar, you know, I don't know how to lie. So if I'm upset, you know, it's not that I come in doing it on purpose. I just, I can't hide what I feel. So Tommy Kale, the director, said to me, oh, are you okay? I said, no, no, I'm not okay. I said, I feel like I've been invited to dinner and I didn't get anything to eat and I'm hungry, you <laughs> know. So he said, yeah, 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 we know, we know, you know. And But, you know, that's what it was. So I decided, you know, to suck it up and say, look, I'm here, i I." committed to this and let's make the best of it and then the show you know started getting really good um, feedback and whatever and then you know all the reviews said hey what's the deal here you know so I didn't have to lobby for myself any more than that because everyone who came to see the show was expecting to you know have me sing something (laughs) so not nothing (laughs) but uh, um, and, and that's kind of what happened and they they knew that the character also, in the story needed the song. So, finally, when um, during our break between Off Broadway and Broadway, you know, Lin Manuel wrote this song, and and um, I'm very happy because most mothers love it.
1: <laughs>
2: they say, "Yeah, yeah, tell them," you know, because you know it's a song basically where she's telling. The husband and the daughter to get their act together.
1: Well, the song is called "Enough," and it takes place in the second act, I guess. Yes, it does. What, what has transpired that that motivates the song?
2: Uh, what's well, there's a lot of friction between the daughter and the and the father, my husband. And um, in the, this particular scene, we th- there's been a blackout. Uh, she didn't come home the night before. Oh, we're really worried about her. We've been searching for her. And finally, we're in the dispatch, you know, the car service dispatch, still looking for her. And she comes in, and then Benny comes in. And, you know, we look – I mean, the audience knows that they've spent the night together because that's happened already. But the parents, you see them have that realization, and the father – in his very Latino way, just
0: <laughs>
2: gets very upset by this. And so he throws Benny out, or, or Benny leaves because they have a... He says, you'll never be part of this family, and what are you doing? And then they, the daughter and the father start arguing, and then finally the mother says, oh, my God, enough. And then they, she tells them, get it together.
0: You've been in a number of new shows, and certainly you've worked with authors in the room. But what's it like to work with the author on stage every night?
2: Well, not so much the author, but the composer. The composer. Sure. <laughs> at first, it was it was so terrible because, you know, he knows if you're singing the wrong note. He knows if you're <laughs> singing it flat. He knows if you're out of, you know, out of sync. So uh, at first, it was a little <laughs> intimidating. But now it's fine. I mean, now he's you know I've gotten past all of that. I feel like I've I'm at home with what I do musically, you know, because even the song, I was the last one to get a song in the show. So everyone was months ahead of me, a whole performance, uh, you know, time ahead of me in terms of having their music become part of their body. So I had to play catch up. And um, it's only really recently that I feel that I've I have arrived, Hmm. you know, with the song.
0: A few minutes ago, you spoke of wanting to do it because of what this says to the Latino community, and what about the Latino community and I've heard people tell stories of there are now cheers that go up before the show starts. People yeah. are coming in rooting, and I'm just wondering what what feedback you've had from from the audiences that that this is bringing in.
2: It's unbelievable first of all, when you walk out of the stage door well besides besides the The, before we start, the screaming and the yelling. (laughs) And then after certain numbers, just, you know, stopping the show. And then at the end, every single night, every single night, since downtown, standing ovations, you know. I mean, I know they're, they're more frequent these years, but (laughs) it's truly spontaneous. I mean, they just jump to their feet. It's not like, oh God, oh, everyone's standing, we'd better stand up. You know, when we come out, they're standing. And then all the people that wait, at the stage door, it's crazy. I mean, it's just... And a lot of young kids. It's a lot of kids. And then a lot of... A lot of everybody. A lot of everybody. It's what the audience is, a very mixed crowd. And um, it's amazing to see these people. And they're just... They're so, well, the Latinos are so grateful, saying thank you so much. Thank you so much for telling our story and for being up there. And then there are the you know, the diehard theater people. Oh, God, it's so good to see you back on stage. You know, They they sound like I've disappeared. I said, hello. I'm, well, I said, you know, um, yeah, this is the first big musical I'm doing since Chorus Line, but I've been working for those 30 years in between. I said, I guess you don't go to, like, straight theater, but... Um, and and then there are the kids who just i mean they're there they already know the words you know mm-hmm. we have these little groupies that are in those first in that first row which is the lottery row they sell those tickets every night for i think $20 or something and you see you see them all the time and they just you know, thrilled.
1: Hmm. Well, you have a daughter who's eighteen, a son who's twenty-three. Yeah. What What is their reaction? The reaction to their friends? Is, is it cool that mom's in the show? Oh yeah. yeah. Yes.
2: Well, also, <laughs> they're just as crazy as I am, and are starting to pursue this whole insanity of. <laughs> so, no, I. You know what's interesting about that is that when they were little, they had, not you know, because. You know, I'm their mom, and I just go and do my thing or whatever. Mm. And, and uh, it wasn't until they got to uh, probably, I, I'm I, believe it or not, like high school when they start joining all those drama groups and whatever, and and people found out that their mom was like Deanna Morales, and <laughs> they had no idea. I mean, they knew that I did this show, but they had no idea what the impact had been or what it meant to so many people. And I remember my daughter once saying to me, did you used to be famous? <laughs> I said, yeah, in some circles, you know. <laughs> oh, no, this is a really funny thing about my daughter. When she was very little, there was a time we were out in Los Angeles, and and I used to be going in and out all the time, you know, for appointments or whatever, and, and I wanted her to sort of understand what we did. And I said, so, Gabriella, what does Daddy do for a living? And she said, conduct. I said, right. I said, and what does Mommy do for a living? She said, Audition.
1: <laughs> I said you got that right. <laughs> were, were, were they involved when you were deciding whether or not to do this show? Did you yes, my him?
2: daughter said you have to do this show, Ma. You have to do this show. She did
1: because of the storyline, the music, or because all of the of music, Evo, music, the music. It, it, it spoke to her.
2: Yes, it really did.
0: We well, just spoke about your kids looking to get into the business. Let's go back and talk about how you started to get into the business. When did the theater bug hit you?
2: Well, I think when it really bit me uh, was when I saw the movie of The King and I. And I remember um, it was like a graduation present for my older sister from junior high school or something. We were all going to go see The King and I. And I had no idea what it was. I imagined, you know, these English kings with the wigs <laughs> sitting up there in their black robes. And I had no interest in this. I, and I was very temperamental when I was little. So I, I, could, I probably threw up hissy fit and tantrum. And I get to this movie and uh, I just went into another world. I mean, I had been watching like, you know, movie musicals on television and things like that. But when it really clicked and when it clicked in my head, like, wow, was The King and I. You know, that... And and then I remember going back and seeing that about eight times in the movies.
1: Mm. So how old were you at that time?
2: I was probably about eight or so, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I had all, I mean, I know that I started dancing lessons when I was seven, so it was all starting to sort of happen at the same time, you know, and that just kind of sparked me. I remember as a kid watching TV and just wanting to climb into the television set and be in that world. I just wanted, like, to step in, you know, and and be there with all those things. And, um, and uh, my mother managed, I mean, because we didn't have any money for sure, and but she managed to squeeze out a little bit to give me some dancing lessons, you know. And she, she in Puerto Rico, she actually worked for uh, La Escuela del Aire, which means the School of the Air, which was kind of like a Channel 13. Mm-hmm. And she would type the scripts for the uh, radio. So she had a little... And then she had a, a friend who took these dance lessons, so she sort of did that. And then I remember when I was really young, she used to buy those every week. Uh, they were those music. Not, uh, they were the pop books. I can't even. Magazines with all the lyrics of the popular songs. Oh, sure. yeah. What would they call
0: them? Oh, I, I, you know, it'd be like song hits popular, and things like that. A pop, or... uh,
2: popular something, or, yeah, Hit Parade. Hit Parade. Oh, okay. The Hit Parade and that. And they. Okay. And so we'd sit there and we'd sing from all these, you know, magazines. And so she was, you know, she was very for it. You know, I wouldn't call her a stage mother because that kind of has like a negative connotation in my head. But she was certainly a very supportive and sacrificed to help me do what, you know. I, I wanted to do.
1: Well, you were born in the Bronx. You grew up in the city, in New York City. No,
2: I was born in the Bronx. Right. I was raised in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. I finally made it to Manhattan, uh-huh. and then I was exiled to New Jersey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did you do wrong? <laughs>
1: no, no. Uh, be- before you went to high school performing arts, were you doing school plays at that point? Were you doing any theater?
2: Well, yeah. Well, I was taking dancing lessons, uh-huh. and um, and I remember probably... The first thing I ever did in, ever, I was in the first grade, and I was a leaf
1: <laughs>
2: in the autumn play, you know, and being blown across the stage and just running back and forth. And my mother made me this, like, brown cape or something that had a leaf on it, or maybe it was shaped like a leaf, but it was like my whole... Butt. So that was my first stage <laughs> appearance as a leaf. And I think probably around the fifth or sixth grade we did this wonderful play... Uh, About uh, the planets, and I was the Mother Earth. (laughs) I am 360 degrees around my middle. I still remember that. (laughs) (laughs) And then the biggie was we did the Pirates of Penzance, Mm -hmm. and I was Buttercup. I'm called Little Buttercup. And that was so cool. I mean, I still remember that. And that was really a triumph, you know, like I felt like, yes, you know. And I I, I don't know, I just guess I just kind of knew I was always going to do that. You know?
1: So then you went to PA, School of Performing Arts.
2: Yes. And I got there um, kind of... Well, I was an extra in West Side Story as a little kid.
1: In the this, uh, movie version. The
2: movie. Yeah. So I I found out about performing arts through all those people in West Side Story who were graduates, you know, had gone to the school. And um, my mother, you know, talked to them and found out. And, and then I, I realized that I'd had to go and audition for this and so I went and I went to um, one of the admitters to the school. Her name was Gertrude Scher, and she had a school down in the village like on 14th Street a modern dance school and someone told me if you go to her and study with her you'll get in the school. That's another song that hasn't been written.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have to say it's a little odd to start talking to you about your experience in high school because there are probably So many people who know part of what your experience was, and probably been singing along with it. But what, outside of what we know from the story and chorus line, overall, how was your experience at the Performing Arts High School? Was it ultimately a rewarding one, or was it ultimately ultimately a frustrating one?
2: No, no. Ultimately, I triumphed. I did. The first year was painful. It was, you know, everything that song is was. That's what it was. The song, nothing. The song, nothing. And the beauty of that was that. Up until my that point in my life, it was the most negative thing that had ever happened to me. To turn around and become the most positive thing was great, but he, Mr. Carp, did die, and so he was out of my life. You know, and I mean, well, something that's not on the record, but it's the next line in the show, uh, and I felt nothing. Says, I mean, I didn't want him to die or anything. And I just didn't want him to be part of my... I was just glad he wasn't going to be part of my life anymore. So I was so happy he was out. So the next year, I had another teacher who was very loving, and her name was Edith Banks. And she just was so easy. And so I started feeling more relaxed and whatever. And then by my senior year, I had Vinette Carroll, who was, you know, a professional director. And she she was fabulous. And she just, you know, made me feel so safe, so secure, and was so supportive. And, um, you know, when we did the big production, we did a, an original production of The Wizard of Oz, and I was Dorothy, and we did, you know, so it was like, it was really cool. I mean, so it was like from you better leave to, you know, really triumphing thing. And getting, then um, I got a... The Bene B'rith Award. 200 (laughs) bucks they gave me. (laughs) So I thought, great, I'll use this money to study over the summer, you know, for my lessons, which I did. And then when September rolled around, I thought, ooh, I better get a job, you know. So I I went and I worked at uh, Alexander's on 57th Street and Lexington Avenue that had just opened. Mm -hmm. And that was like my one and only real job, you know, ever. And then that was just uh, the best thing that happened at Alexander's was... That very first blackout in 1965, Mm -hmm. you know, the very first one when the whole eastern seaboard was out. So uh, that was kind of exciting.
1: <laughs> so I presume shortly after that, you got cast in your, your big Broadway debut, Breakfast at Tiffany's, with uh, Richard Chamberlain and Mary Tyler Moore in the more. cast, and yes. David Merrick producing it. That was probably very exciting at that moment. When well, you got everyone
2: cast. was, you know, this is going to be a huge hit, and it's going to be a huge hit, and it was Abe Burroughs who wrote the book and was directing it. And, and um, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I... I memorized everything in that show. I knew, besides the music and the lyrics and the dancing, I knew all the musical cues. I knew all the light cues. I I knew that show. And I just kept waiting, thinking, I'm going to go on, you know? And I was not married to my it's more understudy in any way, shape, or form, but I thought, the understudy won't be able to go on, and I'll get my chance, and I'm going to go on. (laughs) But it was just um, not to be. And the show, we... We went to uh, four weeks in Boston and four weeks in Philadelphia, and then the media started getting hold of it and saying things like, well, who do these television people think they are coming to the theater? And uh, even Dr. Kildare can't fix this one and, you know, just stuff like that. But, and um, it never opened. We only did two previews. And by then the chorus was out. I mean I didn't even get to do those two previews on Broadway. I heard the chorus was fired even before
0: the show opened. Well they weren't they let
2: people well because they brought in Edward Albee to fix the book (laughs) and and Abe Burroughs I guess he felt, this is where I need to leave. So Abe Barrows left, and Edward Alby came in, and suddenly, you know, Holly Golightly was being punched in the stomach when she was pregnant, and it got <laughs> very dark. <laughs> so um, it's, and I think they, they were try- trying to go in a different direction, and they didn't want it to be a Broadway. So basically, I couldn't be fired because I was on a six-month contract. So they were paying me. But I was home, you know, I didn't, they no longer had any use for the chorus. But uh, as I said, they only did two previews, and um, that was it.
0: It is one of those shows that is decades later still spoken of, and people are curious, and obviously you were, you were fairly new to the business, you were young, but from your perspective, was there value in the show, or was the show really a mess?
2: I I don't think it was so bad. That's what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. It's like I mean, I've seen shows and have you know, experienced other things that are no, it was okay. You know, I mean, I, I I try to be objective and I look back and I go It had good dance numbers, you know, uh it was Michael Kidd and he you know, he was a very athletic choreographer and it was all this fun kind of choreography and and it was a love story and it had good music. It had some good songs. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was so bad, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Well, a year later, you did get to make your Broadway debut, actually, in a show that did open, <laughs> had a short run, Henry Sweet Henry, ran Henry a couple Sweet. months, I guess, but it was a Broadway debut.
2: It was. It was. And uh, I think, I can't remember who the reviewer was. It might have been Clive Barnes at that point. And he really killed the show. When he first reviewed it, and then later re-reviewed it like two months later, and said, "You know what? It really wasn't that bad, <laughs> but it was too late. The damage had been done. The damage had been done. And that was a cute. That's a show that should be revived.
0: Well, we should explain to people because people probably don't know the show. It was a musical adaptation of the film The World, World of Henry Orient, which people may know because it was a Peter, Peter Sellers, Sellers film. And the story of two young girls who, who follow were, him
2: around and yeah. think he's whatever, you know. Well, he's
0: a, he was a concert pianist in the oh, film right, right, right. that they were crazy for. I don't know yes, if the, yes, if the yes. show changed it. He
2: was, uh, well, it was, we did a concert. It, he, it was, a. guess, we were all playing our body parts. And I got to, this was my big instrument. So we, for we for did. those who, since everyone's on radio,
0: <laughs> you were just clicking your tongue Clicking for my
2: tongue. And there were body, you know, slaps. and So it was this uh, sort of avant-garde uh, performer. That's
0: Pre-stomp. A, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they
2: made him that. But um, that had a lot of... That was Michael Bennett choreography. And that had some wonderful dancing in it. And I don't know. I, I always wish... That's a show that should re revived i think it's just a fun thing
0: one of the reasons i know a little bit about that show is that was the year that william goldman wrote his book the season and commemorated all of the shows on broadway that year i'm wondering have you ever had a chance to read that book i did not read. no i was curious because for for a lot of people it's a time capsule of, of what was going on and that was was one of the shows that he wrote about at the time it's just Probably it's interesting it. that 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 season is is recorded in a way few Broadway seasons are so, I was curious, but you mentioned, of course, Michael Bennett. Now, was that your first opportunity to work? Yes, with him? it was. So, so I, obviously, he selected you. You were in the ensemble. So, he... well,
2: what happened was that uh, Robert Merrill, who wrote the music for Breakfast at Tiffany's, when Breakfast at Tiffany's closed, he said, "I have another show that I think you'd be right for. So, just keep in touch with me." Hmm. You know, and he actually gave me his telephone number, and I said, "Okay." So. I thought, you know, <laughs> even that young, I had the disease. I'll never work again. <laughs> so I was panicked, you know, and I thought, and I, I just wanted to work. And the first thing that came along was this review down in Miami Beach, you know, at the Carillon Hotel. But the only reason that it had some interest uh, was that, um, oh, God, um, he had just won the, the, the Tony for Cabaret Choreography.
0: Psh- uh, Field Ron Field Ron Fields. yes right,
2: and this was his project. So I thought, well, how you
0: know,
2: Ron Field? He's I'm going to go work with Ron Field. So um, I got that sh- that it was a review, you know, f- and basically <laughs> what it was was we went into this room at the Carillon Hotel, which was supposed to be a a tits and feathers room, you know, <laughs> showgirls. But they were, were going to change their image, so they hired all these, you know, s- young people and I had these little bangs and this long hair and I was all of 18, 19 years old and um, it was a big fat flop and yeah. we would, uh, we used to go up to the dressing room upstairs and go, ha, ha, look at these showgirl costumes and we'd put them on, you know, and prance around thinking, uh, this is great fun. And little did we know that in a couple of weeks when the show we were doing was bombed, that we would be wearing those costumes. <laughs> so, anyway, I was down in Florida and I kept calling Bob Merrill, going, What's happening? Is it, you know, what's it? De-? He said, Well, you know, it's, it's good. So, finally, it was the uh, final audition, the final call for this Henry Sweet Henry. And uh, I was down in Florida and we were doing the red, white, and blue review during the day, you know, the night. And then all during the night, we'd be rehearsing the new Showgirl number. And then I got on a plane, flew to New York, did the audition. And uh, and I was so tan because all I did was lie on the beach because there was nothing to do in Miami, and there was Michael Bennett the first time I ever saw him, and I, you know, who knows what it is, charisma? I just went dong, I, along with the whole world. Every he had something about him that was just like magnet. He was a magnet, and um, and I know that. He was probably getting from Robert Merrill, this girl, this girl, this girl. But the truth was that I could cut it and I could sing, which at that point in time, you still had two choruses, singing, dancing. So if you were a dancer who could sing, you were going to get the job. And that was always like my secret weapon, you know, because I, if I got through the dance audition, I knew that I had the job because then the musical director says, oh, yeah, I want her. So now you've got two you know strikes going for you not strikes but two points and that's kind of how it happened and then he Michael Bennett asked me would I be interested in being the swing and I went sure like you know I never say no <gasps> yes I had no idea what the swing was I thought it was someone who sat in the swing and, <laughs> and uh, so that was exciting because then I was you know understanding all the little girls in the show and all the adult women so uh, one night you know I be a little girl. The next night, I was an old lady hanging out the windows, so it was kind of fun.
1: Well, before we get to a chorus line of Michael Bennett and, and that whole involvement, let's talk about two successful musicals that you went into as a replacement in the early 70s, Company followed by Pippin, right. both of those which were musicals that were successes. They were not ones that were canceled before they opened. They <laughs> certainly were both successes, so how did you get involved with both of those? Starting, well, I guess, with Company first.
2: With Company, um, so I did Henry Sir Henry for Michael Bennett, mm-hmm. and then- um, did I work with him after that? I did industrial. I did an industrial with him. Like, the Milliken show is a show that doesn't happen anymore, but it was a big industrial. It was like a dream job for dancers on Broadway. They actually fed you and paid you a good salary and gave you a bonus at the end. Wow. <laughs> so,
1: and, and, and Milliken was, uh, was a company it was, in the fashion business.
2: Yes, right. it was a fabrics. Fabric. Company. And we would do, uh, you know, Broadway show tunes with other lyrics like... Love the look of me inside, me looking out
1: of wear.
2: And they'd have these big Broadway stars you know, doing these silly little skits, just selling these fabrics and, and modeling the clothes that the fabrics were in. And uh, we got to keep all the clothes. and So I did that with Michael. And, but um, for company, I by then I had moved on and I had been doing different roles, whatever, and I had been on the road doing other parts and and I heard that follies was auditioning and that Michael Bennett was in it I mean that he was choreographing and I wanted to audition for follies and I got with my accompanist and I said um okay, I'm going to audition and I'm going to sing this song from the Me Nobody Knows. It's called War Babies, which is like nothing you would ever sing for Follies. He said, you can't sing that for Follies. I said, yes, I can. He said, that's not not a song to sing for Follies. I said, look, I'm not auditioning for Follies. I'm not auditioning for Hal Prince. I'm auditioning for Michael Bennett. I want him to see me in a certain way, you know, to see that I've grown. Because it had been three years that I hadn't seen him. And now, you know, I had been doing roles, and I just wanted to, to think of me as an actor, a lead, you know, a principal player as opposed to a dancer. So I sang the song, and that's exactly what happened. He was very impressed. He came up, and he said, listen, come back on Thursday. So I went, oh, great. So I come back on Thursday, and my heart sinks. It's like the final call for the dancers. And I went, oh, man. So I was just... So I start in the audition or whatever. But, I, you know, when you don't use something for three years like your dancing brain, it goes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that your body can't do it, but your brain is a little slower in terms of putting steps together and remembering them and just getting that part of your brain happening. So I was feeling very frustrated, and I just sort of jumped over the orchestra pit into the mm-hmm. theater, and I said, I can't do this. And he said, just, just sit here. So we, I sat. They did their whole audition, and people were talking back and forth. And then later on, he said, Well, how would you like to... uh go into company, stand by for Donna, and when she leaves, you can take
1: over. I said,
2: yeah. <laughs> so that's how I got into company. How about Pippin? Pippin, um, I was doing, at when Pippin was happening, I, I was doing a, a review called What's a Nice Country Like You? Doing in a State Like This. It was a political satirical view, review at Jimmy's on 52nd Street. And uh, it was really the first time I s- stepped out in New York seems, you know, and got some attention. And um, Leland Palmer, who had been doing
0: Pastrata, for
2: for she was also in Your Own Thing, which I had done, and so I knew her from there, too. And she came to see the show, and she said, listen, I'm going to tell you, nobody knows what I'm leaving, and you should audition for this role. So I sort of had a heads up on it. And I don't know how I got to audition, because I don't really remember the, that time having an agent. But I got to audition, and um, and I uh, I got the um, I went as the character because the the young man who was playing the uh, prince, uh, not the Pippin role, but the Lewis, we went to high school together, so we were the same age, and I'm supposed to be his mother, and I know Fistrada's is like hot to trot, and she's younger, but. Still, I thought I should be a little more mature, so I thought I can't go as myself. I have to do something. So I went in full costume, and the hairdresser who was the hairdresser at Pippin, I had known him from Her First Roman, he actually got me the wig from the show.
1: Wow. And I put that...
2: I mean, I had, you know, balls, as you can say. I always want to write a book and say, uh, when I had balls. <laughs> and... uh he sent me to NBC to a makeup artist and gave me a little old-age makeup. Who knows if it made any difference? But the point was when I went into the theater, I thought, because I'm with my contemporaries. You know, everybody, I, you always see at auditions. And to walk in like this, you think, I mean, it's taking a chance. You say, I'm either going to be the laughing stock of
1: New York or I'm going to get this job. You obviously made an impression.
2: I did. I got the job. and. Bob Fosse was in the back of the theater, and when I finished my audition, he ran down the aisle and put his hand on the stage, and he said, Now, that's what I call a well-prepared audition.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know
2: what? Even if I don't get the job, it was worth it just for that.
0: Well, let's go now to Chorus Line, which has been chronicled, written about, <laughs> performed endlessly since the beginning. But we, I have to ask you... Can you tell us a bit about the sessions that led to Chorus Line? What those, I mean, we hear of them as interviews, we hear of them as groups. What was, what was the process by which the material was drawn out from all of you?
2: Okay, this is how it started. I was doing Pippin, and I get a call from a dancer, choreographer, Tony Stevens, who says, "Uh, Priscilla, you know, because the business was, like, bad. I mean, there was... That's... Chorus Line kind of revived. It was a time with like, a new beginning again. But in those early 70s, things were a little tough on Broadway. And there wasn't a lot of work. So he was basically calling me saying, you know, a bunch of us are getting together and we want to see if we can, you know, make something happen. Maybe it's a like a repertory company or whatever and we want dancers who've gone on and done other things like you and you know he was just trying to drum up something for dancers and it was him and Michonne Peacock who was also a dancer and they were in this together so I said yeah sure I- I'd love to come and he said oh by the way Michael will be there and I said Michael Bennett <laughs> I said I'll be there <laughs> so um, the, we we were told to arrive at this place. It was like a and rehears- It was really an exercise uh, establishment, you know. It was on top of Dunkin' Donuts on 23rd Street and 3rd Avenue. And I remember it was a snowy night, you know, come all the way from the west side down. So we go up there, and all of a sudden, hey, here are all these dancers from Pippin. You know, I, I didn't know that they would all be there. And, oh, God, and who's that redhead you know, smoking the sick. Oh, her! I've seen her at auditions all the time. And oh, and who's that weird? Oh, the, you know, all these people that you've seen that you audition with, but you don't really know. But they're your contemporaries, and you only know them if you've worked with them. But it's kind of like, hmm, what are we doing here? So we start out dancing and warming up, and and it seems okay. And then all of a sudden, Michael Bennett walks in with Donna McKechnie, and suddenly it's like. <gasps> you know, the tension goes up like, okay, what is this? Are we auditioning? What are we doing here? You know, and, and then he starts dancing and so things get a little... And then that finishes and then we all sort of it into this other smaller room and we had wine and, you know, little things to eat and we sort of sat, we sat in a circle and I was at the end of the circle and Michael Bennett started saying, well, you know, I really think the dancers have a story to tell. And he said, I'm going to ask you some questions. And you don't have to answer anything you don't want to. But if you, you know, whatever you do say, just be honest about it. And you can talk as long or as little as you like. Um, And we said, oh, he said, I don't know if tonight. And he said, and I'm going to tape it all. And I don't know if this is going to be a book or a play or a movie or a musical Or just tonight but you know and that's kind of how it started so then he would ask a question and then he was the first one to answer it and then we went around the room and there were about 25 of us and basically what happened that night is what you see up on the stage Zach Michael Bennett says I want to know your real name where you were born and when and then we went down that was the first question so all the jokes that are up there. Hi, my name is Judy Turner. My real name is Lana Turner. <laughs> you know, She really said, hi, my name is Trish Garland. My real name is Judy Garland. So everything that's up there was what we all said because it was all put down on these tapes. So then we'd go to the next question. So how did you get to New York? You know, and blah, 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 blah. And we kept progressing and then we got to the high school years and that's where I told the story about what happened to me in high school which became nothing and had did... it so the whole course line all the way down to what do you do when you can't dance anymore you know so uh, basically that's how the show was created and it was all put on these tapes and but they were all in monologue form so then after that, uh, Nicholas Dante, who is the character of Paul San Marco, the homosexual boy uh, in the show, he spent like an entire summer just lifting, you know, this is pre-technology, pre-techn- <laughs> typing all this stuff. Transcripts. Transcripts, mm-hmm. right from the tapes. And then we had our first, which was not called Workshop because it didn't exist, because our work created that whole thing of a workshop we are the mother of the workshop and uh, remember just doing all these monologues you know of my stories and we all um, so we were just sort of experimenting with the material and and trying to see who these characters were and, and how things translated and then we had a break and then we had another session of these well actually we had two weekends of these tape sessions first and uh, the best part about it was that all these people like, you know, that redhead with the cigarette, Kelly Bishop, became my best friend. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that weirdo over there, Nicholas Dante, you know. And suddenly when everyone is just pouring out their heart and soul, you you realize, well, looking back on it now, it's what happened with the chorus line. My chorus line was such a big hit because it was about people's heart and souls, you know. So... um, Uh, that's, it's really what happened on those weekends, what A Chorus Line is.
1: Then, of course, it got produced at the public theater off-Broadway, Joe Paps Public here in New York, then transferred ultimately to the Schubert and played on Broadway for about 15 years. Right. So did you go to see the the most recent version, the current version? I did. And what did you think of Morales when you saw, were you thinking of yourself as you were watching this?
2: Well, I was was seeing the show in double vision. Uh Uh-huh. I was seeing it happening. And then just because the original people are so ingrained in me and myself also <laughs> that the people would come forward and I would – it almost it was like watching Follies with the ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> so I was watching Follies when I saw Coruscant, watching all the ghosts come forward. But uh, it was just wonderful to see the craft of the show. You know, the show's beautifully crafted. And um, it was nice to have it out there again and for, you know, younger generations who have not seen it to be able to see it, you know. And,
0: um. and it's got to be interesting because so often we ask people on this show when they've been in a production and then years later get a chance to see it in a revival or if they directed the original and go to see someone else's production. But in this case, you go back and you're seeing part of your life played yeah. by other people. That's That's got to be well, Fascinating the thing, and, well, the and, thing is
2: that it's, you know, as actors, we all have our interpretation of material, you know. And so when I watched other people do me, you know, they do it, but it's their interpretation. So it's like, uh, I think, right. You know and I and it's such a personal thing because only I know what that psyche is, you know, so people have come close to my psyche and they'll never be my psyche, and that's okay, you know, they can't be because it's me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know they they have their own interpretation you
1: know well, in a chorus line, you essentially played yourself in a day in Hollywood a night in Ukraine, you essentially played Harpo Marx.
2: <laughs> I did, I did. <laughs> That was fun.
1: Tell us about that show. It was it was two different acts, and they were two different storylines. Right. Act, well,
2: second. the first act was the ushers at Gromman's Chinese Theater preparing for the matinee movie, and the movie starring the Marx Brothers. So in the first act, we were these, and we were putting on a show. You know, it's like, get ready for the show, you know, and all that.
1: Doing songs of the 1930s. Right. It was musicals. like a review.
2: Yeah. It was a 1930s musical review, and uh, it was great fun, and... The choreography that Tommy Toon did in that was sensational. There was this thing called the ankle stage, which was another stage above us. And um, there was a number of famous feet. And David Garrison and myself, we did the number on stage, tap dancing. But then these famous feet would come across dancing. And you knew who they were. You know, it was Dorothy uh, or it was um, Fred and Ginger. With the ruby slippers. With the ruby slippers. And you only saw the people from the knees down. Uh And then they also had a bar that they would hang on. So when Fred and Junior would dance, you know, they would be suspended in the air. And it was just a wonderful, beautiful effect. I mean, it was great. So that was a lot of fun. And um, so in the first act, it's the show that the ushers are saying, come on, you know, come on down to Grauman's Chinese Theater. I can't even remember the tune, but... Um, and. Um, and then the second act was uh, a Marx Brothers movie, which was written by uh, Dick Vosberg, who was obsessed with the Marx Brothers. And most people thought that it was really a real film script of theirs. And it wasn't. He was just so in tune. And the crazy part of this, which when things are meant for you, they're just for you, you know, so you shouldn't get upset when you don't get certain things because it just wasn't for you. But this one was for me because <laughs> I, um, I was in Los Angeles and, they had just invented the Betamax, and it used to be about this big. <laughs> and we bought one, and there had been a Marx Brothers film festival on television. And for whatever reason, my husband taped all these movies. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm getting a little, like, antsy in L.A. because it's just not the place for me. And I said, you know what? I'm going back to New York. I need a New York fix, and I can't be here anymore, and I'm going to leave. So I go back to New York. And as soon as I literally land and I arrive at my mother's house, my husband calls me and said, Tommy Toon's in town, and he's looking for you because he wants you to audition for his new show about the Marx Brothers. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah. Uh, he said, but don't worry about it. He's going back to New York, and you can, you know, he'll see you there. And he said, and guess what part he wants you to audition for? And I thought, Margaret Dumont? (laughs) He said, no, 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 guess again. And I, then the only one I could, I said, Harpo? And he said, yeah. (laughs) So now I have all this information. I've got all their movies. Well, Well, my husband has them. He puts them in a box and sends them to New York, and I start watching these movies, and I've got Harpo down. I mean, I know all his shtick, you know. And I love it because... I'm a very physical person, and I love physical comedy. I mean, my most favorite people... I mean, I think the first physical comedian who made me crazy was Emma Jean Coca. And then after her, you know, like Martha Ray, and, and then um, Lucille Ball, and then... Um,
0: Carol Burnett?
2: Carol Burnett! Oh, my... All that phys- physical stuff makes me nuts. I love that. So it was perfect, you know, and... Um, and so when I auditioned, my first audition for Tommy Toon was just me, and um, I was a wreck because <laughs> I hadn't—I had been in LA, and like I say, when you're not doing what you do, your it goes away. So um, I came back and I and I did the audition and I sang and and Tune said to me, "What do you think about when you sing?" And I thought, "Oh, this is the trick question. If I answer this right, you know, he'll um, I'll get the job." So I said, "Well." well, let's see, um, I sing and um, the words come out <laughs> and then I hear them and <laughs> I have an emotional reaction to them. And he goes, oh, okay. But he was really just <laughs> asking me He was me just, just question. curious.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, he, you know, then the, 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 uh, the assignment was to come back and do a mime. And I thought, what am I going to do? Like I'm being eaten by a fly or something? So I decided... I'm auditioning for Harpo Marx, I'll go in as Harpo Marx, like I did for Strata. And I went in full costume with the horn and the wig and the hat and the thing, and I did all his stuff. And then at the end, uh, I only was shy about doing one thing, but it probably would have been gangbusters. I jumped off the stage, and I ran up the aisle, and I jumped into somebody's lap. I didn't know who he was. It turned out it was Dick Vosberg, the writer. But my re- what I really wanted to do was to take his tie and cut it, which is what (laughs) Harpo marks, but I thought, no, that's taking a little too far. It could
0: have been a very expensive tie. It could have been a very (laughs) expensive
2: tie, and that would have been the end of me.
0: So now to jump, we've been talking for the better part of an hour now, and it's all about musicals, is what we've really been discussing. And we're going to give short shrift to the fact, unfortunately, that you've done countless plays, and because of the time, I just want to jump right to... You've done two plays by Nilo Cruz yes um, both a Latin and a Latin author, both Latin themes and I'm just wondering about the experience of being this this noted musical performer and how you transformed into a dramatic actress and and had the opportunity to really come around to do work you know that that speaks to your culture and your heritage too.
2: well, here's the secret if you listen to the nothing. I'm so excited because I'm going to go to the high school of performing arts. I mean, I was dying to be a serious actress. I always wanted to be an actress. And through my dance, I felt that I was acting. And because of the dance, that's what I was given. I was given dance lessons, so I got into the musicals. But I wanted to talk. I wanted to be the talking one. Hmm. And then finally, I got to do roles in a musical. But unfortunately, this business, they... Pigeonhole you, you know. So if you're a musical person, oh, you're musical, you know. And so I had to like, after I won the Tony, I said to my agent, "I want to do plays. I want to do plays," you know. And so I remember her sending me out to some place out in Oshkosh. I said, "No," I, I said. She said, "Well, what do you want to do?" I said, "What about all those theaters on Forty Second Street? Come on, you know. I want to do some." Get so I went and I auditioned for this play, which was Ronald Ribman's last play called Buck and uh, Morgan Freeman was in it Jimmy Smits was in it and uh, I loved that play I mean it was I'm, I've gone all into another tangent but um, that's how it was that I just insisted I need to do plays you know and um, and it's so crazy because people come to see In the Heights and they say oh my god you know we haven't seen you it's so good to see you on stage again and I've been working for 30 years doing plays that I, I love to do plays.
0: But it was 35 years, almost 35 years from the time you made your Broadway debut that you finally got to be on Broadway in a play, namely Anna in the Tropics.
2: Yes. That was, and and I was really upset because I, I felt that that play, you know, got a little short-changed in terms of its visibility. I, I never felt like we, people even knew we were there. People who came to see the play loved it. And uh, it just, I don't know, It just made me sad that it didn't last longer. And we had a beautiful television star in this play, you know. And I remember saying to the powers that be, hey, we need a television commercial. Oh, plays don't have television commercials. I said, yes, they do. And the fact is that you have a huge television star in your play and people who watch television, you know, the people who want to see him watch television. (laughs) So, you know, it makes a little but anyway, but it was a beautiful play, and I love Nilo Cruz's work. I love how he writes. I love how he writes for women. They're always strong. Uh, there's not an age situation happening. He always sees women, whatever age, as sexual beings, you know, which is really nice if you're a woman. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm past X amount of years, so now I've got to be the old biddy or whatever. No. You know, so that's really nice. Um, I love doing his plays.
1: We've been talking for about an hour now, mostly about your musicals. We could do another whole hour just on the plays you've done, because you certainly <laughs> have done many. But, Priscilla,
0: we do thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Priscilla. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org For XM
1: Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap. And thank you.
0: The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.